Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Christ Community Church. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Justin and Zach and Chris and Bethany and Bryce. Bless you. I always love to see new people come and participate. It just adds spirituality and character and all kind of good stuff, wisdom to the group. And so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, if you're a student, you're dismissed. Carter, you go get them straight, okay? Uh, we're glad you're here today. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this Tuesday night at 630 at Kim and Jerry Bowden's home, the ladies are going to gather and hang out together, enjoy each other, enjoy old relationships, create some new relationships. That's good. And have a Bible study that you're going to lead. Indeed. Is that right? Indeed. This Tuesday night. Yep. 6.30 at Kim and Jerry's. And if you need more information about that, you can contact me or Shirley or Tommy or Patty or go on our website. Justin, I think it's on our website. And so you can, you can go there. It's in the email if you, if you get yeah. that. If you don't yeah. get the email and you want to, let Larry know. Yeah, just give me a piece of paper with your email on it. And uh, we'll, we'll put you on the list. Um, no one in here is going to be surprised when I make the declaration that life and the relationships we are involved in in life are at times hard and messy. That doesn't shock anybody. Uh, and part of that hardness, that difficulty and messiness in our relationships is the fact that regularly wounds and wrongs are going to take place. I'm going to wound you and wrong you, and you're going to wound me and wrong me. And that happens in our marriages, it happens in our families, it happens at work, it ha happens with our immediate family, extended family, uh, friendships, friendships uh, co-workers, people, uh, one another at church. Um, Life is hard, and those wounds and those wrongs that take place make it hard, make it messy. And Jesus said at least twice, one in Luke 17, which we're going to look at today, and in Matthew 18, Jesus said those wounds and wrongs and that hardness and that messiness are absolutely unavoidable. No one gets a pass on that relational difficulty and messiness. No one gets a pass on the relational wounds and wrongs that take place. And what the Bible adds to that is, and that I really want you to think about with me today, is that while the wounds and the wrongs are unavoidable, we all get to choose how we respond to those wrongs and wounds. And the Bible would declare, I'm suggesting the Bible declares, that the way, Randy, you and I respond to those wrongs and wounds in our lives is going to define our life. Sets the path. It determines our life. It ultimately determines our life. How? 
you tell me, you show me how you respond to relational wrongs and wounds, and I will tell you how your life is going to go and how your life is going to end. There are very few things so definitive. That's exactly frankly. right. Yeah. Most things are much more uncertain. Might happen, might not happen. But you, you tell me how you consistently respond to wrongs and wounds in your relationships, and I will tell you, the Bible will tell you, how your life is going to go and how it's going to turn out. Jesus came to our world and lived and died and rose again for many reasons. He accomplished many purposes. But above and beyond all else, everything else pales in comparison to his goal of dying, living, dying, and rising again to address those relational pains and wrongs. He died and rose again so that he could reconcile and restore our broken relationships. Our broken relationships with God, our broken relationships with each other. Let me give you a couple of verses, Colossians, and I could give you a hundred, not uh, exaggerating, I could give you a hundred, but let me just give you three quick ones. Colossians 1, Paul said, once you were alienated and enemies. And the suggestion is, the implication is, enemies and alienated from God, enemies and alienated from each other. Okay? Once you were alienated and enemies because of your evil behavior, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's death, and He's made you holy and free from blemish and accusation. He's made us free from blemish and accusation. He says in Romans 5, while we were still God's enemies, we experienced reconciliation through the death of Christ. And then in Ephesians 2, Paul says, Christ's purpose, why He came, was to create one new humanity out of the two. The two he's referring to is Jews and Greeks, Jews and Romans. And in that day, they could not have been more alienated, separated, could not have possessed more ill will, distrust, dislike, scorn. Uh, uh, there was no two people groups could have had more disdain for each other than the Jews and the Greeks. And yet, Paul says Christ's purpose was to create one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace by breaking down the walls of hostility, separating us from God and from one another. I love that image that Jesus came to tear down walls. I want you to think just for a second about some of the people in your life. Notice I didn't say if you have any. I said I want you to think about some, because you, don't, you won't live long enough to remember them all, um, but I want you to think of, of some of the people in your life that there's a wall. 
varying heights, varying thicknesses, made out of varying materials. But I want you to think about some of the people that you've got walls with. For this exercise, just thinking about one will do. Yes, one, that, 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 that's a good place to start. Jesus came to break down the walls of hostility that separate us from God and one another. None of, that doesn't surprise anybody in this room that I said that. You've heard that before. The part that I want to stress today, though, is this. Jesus didn't just come to break down those walls, to create unity where there's disunity, peace where there is turmoil, uh, love where there's hate. He didn't just come to do that. He came to place that same calling on you and me. That's the calling that God, God, God the Father placed that calling on His Son. But then Jesus said, I want to place that calling on you too. That's your calling too. Jesus says, I have given you an example to follow. You are to impact others as I have impacted you. So that calling of being a wall terror downer, uh, a creator of one relationship where there was no relationship, where there was division. What Jesus is saying there is this. It is very important to him that those that have experienced those that are the beneficiaries of God's reconciliation, of God's restoration, Jesus wants us to follow suit. Jesus wants us to then embrace the calling to be reconcilers and to be restorers. Does that make sense to you? It does. It okay. does make sense. Um, it's worthy of a sermon, I think. I think so. I think so. Would you, would you do me a favor? I would. Would you please, uh, Colin, shoot that passage up on the board for me. And would you read that to the group? I would. Do you mind? I would not. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Luke chapter 17. That's where we're going to camp out today. One day Jesus said to his disciples, There will always be temptations to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. So watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then if there is repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks forgiveness, you must forgive. The apostle said to the Lord, show us how to increase our faith. And the Lord answered, if you had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and thrown into the sea, and it would obey you. Okay, I think that's good. Okay. I've read that passage a zillion times. No kidding. And I've read that passage and meditated on that passage 50 times in the last week. I've camped there, and I've wrestled with it, and studied it, and... 
tried to grasp, grasp what Jesus is really saying there. And the word that kept jumping out at me as I've studied that passage and read that passage and read that passage and read that passage is this, that word millstone. A millstone in Jesus' day <clears throat> would have, was a, you know, you've seen them. It's a round uh, rock, <clears throat> most often made out of sandstone or different kinds of stone. But it, and it weighed around 100 pounds. That was the average, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little more. But a, a millstone, and they would use that to grind and cr crush and grind grains and turn them into meals and flowers and, and, and things like that. Um, but what Jesus says is, he says that relational dysfunction, relational division, relational hostility is like in his world. When he looks down and looks at us, what he sees happening where there's relational hostility and dysfunction and division, he sees an image like somebody that would be out in the water with a hundred pound weight wrapped around their neck. Trust women with that. How do you think that would go? I, uh, I, I hate to swim. I wouldn't mind swimming if you didn't have to get wet. But, yeah, if you were, but, but my grandson loves to swim. My daughter loved to swim. And I swam with her. I've never liked to swim. And, but when she got old enough, lad, come swimming with me. So I swam with her all the time. When she stopped needing me to swim with her, I have not been in a swimming pool since then. <laughs> then my grandson comes along and he wants me to go over to Aunt Kim's house and take him swimming and we go swimming all the time. Swimming for most people is fun. Swimming with a hundred pound weight strapped around your neck would not be fun. In fact, the two words that come to my mind when I think about the idea of being out in a deep pool or a sea or an ocean or a lake with a hundred pound millstone strapped around my neck, what I think of is two words. The word exhausting and dangerous. It's no longer fun. It would be exhausting to try to stay above water with a hundred pounds hung around my neck. And at some point, it becomes dangerous. And ultimately, you go to the bottom. Can you think of two words that better describe so many of our relationships? They're exhausting. They're exhausting. Every day you get up, and either you do the hurting or you get hurt. You do the disappointing or you get disappointed. And the division gets deeper and wider and higher. And it, it, it drains us. It drains us of, of 
every bit of life, of energy, of power. It's no longer fun. And at some point, the relationships die. They experience death. I find it so, such a powerful image that Jesus when he's talking about relational division, relational dysfunction, that he uses this idea of being out in the water with a millstone, a hundred pound weight on me, and it's just pulling me down and pulling me down and pulling me down, and I'm just scrambling, I'm scrambling, I'm scrambling, trying to stay above water. And that which originally was designed for fun, for entertainment, for exercise, for, for enjoyment has transformed and transitioned into that which is nothing but exhausting and ultimately death. There's not a person in this room that doesn't understand that. The more I studied this passage, the more I saw that the Lord Jesus gives us maybe more, but I saw at least five things that the Lord Jesus gives us in love. Because He loves us and He doesn't want us to be just trying to keep our nose above water and swim and swim and swim and swim and swim. And swim. He wants us to, ha to see relationships as that which gives life, not takes it. That which gives us rest rather than frustration and exhaustion. And so in this passage that Shirley just read, I feel like he, gives, he gave me at least five things that he wanted me to think about that he wants me and you, I think, to consider embracing in our lives so that we can transform our relationships from divisive and dysfunctional into that which gives us life and joy and peace. And the way I get it in my mind is if this weight is what's pulling me down, how do I get how do I lose some relational weight? That's really the question that I'm going to ask is how do you lose the relational weight that is ruining your relationships and mine. And I want to give you five thoughts that I think Jesus is suggesting. I want you to think, please don't write me off. Please don't shut me out. At least consider that God is here and that God is at work and that God is speaking to us. If we'll hear, if we have ears to hear, so that we can get rid of that which ultimately sinks us, drowns us. First one is this, just five statements. Number one, I think Jesus was telling his disciples, and that includes me and you, that, and I'm just going to use me, I think Jesus is saying, Larry, your response to wrongs and wounds is more important than the wrongs and the wounds. 
your response to the wrongs and the wounds is more important than the wrongs and the wounds done to me. I find it very significant every time Jesus tells us to forgive the Lord's Prayer. Forgive those, uh, uh, Father, forgive us as we forgive others. Here, where he says to forgive. And new, Jesus talks about this numerous times. Never once, when Jesus talks about forgiveness, does he ever give us an example. I find that very significant. And I think the reason is because if he gave you examples of what you must forgive, that gives us loopholes on what we can't forgive. He doesn't give us any examples. He doesn't say, I want you, Terry, to forgive. When this happens, you need to forgive A, B, C, and D. But, ah, what about M, N, O, and P? He never gives us an exception. He never gives us an out. Just that we keep on doing it. Just that we keep, thank you. Uh, to me, Paul got this uh, so clearly that the wrong is not as important as my response. Let me give you an example of where Paul got this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is writing to the Christians at Corinth. And he says, y'all, he's rebuking the fire out of them. And he says, y'all are shameful because you are Christians and you're suing each other. He never mentions why. He never mentions who's right or who's wrong, what the problems are. He just says, shame on you for suing each other, going into public court in front of unbelievers and suing each other. Is there no one in your church that you could go before the two of you that are mad at each other and let them help you find an answer? And then Paul says this, wouldn't it be better to just suffer the wrong? Whatever the wrong is, wouldn't it? And what he's saying is, in God's eyes, you fighting is worse. You not forgiving is on a higher level than whatever the conflict, the problem was. Jesus says in John 14, all who believe in me will do the same works that I have done. Well, what was the ultimate work of Jesus? His dad said, Jesus, I love mankind. They're the definition, the dictionary definition of dysfunctional and divisive. I want you to go and die on a cross for them. I want you to respond to their wrong by dying. You know, I don't remember reading where Jesus says, well, could we go over what they've done? Could I at least know, a, let's make a list of the wrongs and then we'll talk about my dying. My but God says, no, no, no. Jesus' response to my wrongs was more important than my wrongs. Jesus' response to your wrongs is more important than your wrongs. And Jesus said, I want you to embrace the same work that I embraced. 
the, my response to the wrongs of mankind more important than the wrongs of mankind. Number two, I think it's very important from this passage. Notice Jesus, uh, you just said, Shirley, that Jesus said, uh, what did you say? Just do it all the time. All keep the time. doing it. Notice he says, the, the example he gives here is somebody that wrongs you, that sins against you. How many times? Well, seven and then 70 times. Seven, seven. seven times per day. <laughs> per day. Now I want you to think about how it would feel. In fact, those are, many of us could, could identify. I've got people in my life, they wrong me seven times every day, maybe more. How do you feel about them? I can tell you how you feel. Same way I feel, mad. You're mad at them. There's no way that somebody could come and poke you in the nose in whatever variation of ways that would look like seven times every day and you not be mad. But what I find here is that what's significant is that Jesus is saying, my feelings cannot drive my response. How I, you know, when somebody hurts me or somebody wrongs me, you know what I catch myself praying? God, would you take away the anger so that I can forgive? I think that's the most unbiblical prayer we could ever pray, and I don't believe Jesus will ever answer it. He will never take away our anger so that we can forgive. What I think Jesus is saying is, you go on and forgive, and the, the anger will go away. I, I was, I was sat th the other day I was sitting on my back porch working on this, and I started thinking, which one of Jesus' commands does Jesus say is predicated on how I feel? Turn the other cheek when you feel like it. Go the second mile when you feel like it. Help the poor when you get an ooey gooey feeling of compassion. Pick up your cross and follow Christ when your feelings encourage that. Bless people that persecute you. Bless and curse not when you get the feeling. No. Jesus' commands, and this would be first on the list in my opinion, Jesus' commands are never predicated by our feelings. I must let Jesus' commands drive me to obey and trust that if I obey, that obedience will impact my feelings, specifically removing my anger. The fact that, that one is angry or upset at a betrayal or at a, you know, whatever offense has happened, just is, it makes sense. It, the offense happened. Yes. To, to say, don't be mad, that's what negates the offense, not the forgiveness. Y yes. People say, well, I don't want to forgive because that means that, you know, that I'm get, letting them off the hook. No, no, no. No. Saying, you know, saying I'm angry says that really happened. Christ asks us, what now? That's exact. Yes. Yes. That's a great way you to put it. You know what I'm saying? It. Yes. No, that's what am I? What, what are you going to do now are you the rest do of now? your life? The anger is a given. God gets angry. 
I hear people say sometimes, God's not angry. Well, number one, they've never read the Bible. God gets angry because he's a person. We get angry because we're people. Anger cannot be an excuse not to respond to wrongs and wounds by choosing to forgive. Third thing, real quickly. I can spend more time talking with you about this if you want to talk later on. But I, I just want to ask you to trust me that I'm telling you the truth. In the original Greek language, when Jesus says, uh, if your brother wrongs you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. The way that is worded in the Greek language is those two things are not stages. Stage one is to rebuke. Stage two is to forgive. That's not the way that's worded. The way that is worded is rebuking and forgiving go together. It's like lying down and sleeping. Or it's like eating and drinking. They, they go together. They're, they're not do this and if that it, it's not it's not one or the other in this context when Jesus says you and I are to rebuke and to forgive what he's saying is that you really can't have one without the other and I want to suggest to many of us one of the reasons that we struggle to forgive is that we have never either learned or been willing to rebuke. They go together. There is a connection between rebuke and forgiveness. Um, and let me get, let me illustrate this. My unwillingness to do what some of us are saying, or some of you are thinking, now I'm one of these people that uh, you make me mad, I'm not gonna keep it inside. I'm gonna tell you, I'm a guy that tells you what you think, what I think. I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm going to rebuke them. Okay. But if we're rebuking without an absolute commitment to forgiving, that's nothing but a selfish desire for vengeance and punishment. That's not, that rebuking is not of God. You just... It's punitive. You're just mad and you want to hurt them or aggravate them because they hurt and aggravated you. Rebuking without an absolute commu uh, commitment to forgiveness is nothing more than a selfish love of vengeance and punishment. But folks, the opposite is also true. A desire to forgive without a willingness to rebuke is nothing more than a selfish desire for peace at all cost. I, I don't want any waves. I don't want any problems. I don't want any conflict. The ultimate goal is I just want peace. But you know what Jesus wants from conflict? Jesus' ultimate goal is not peace. And Jesus' ultimate goal is not punishment. Jesus' ultimate goal is to use that event, that experience, that difficulty to help both of us become more like Christ. And that demands 
rebuking and that demands forgiving. It requires both. It's so important that we see that. Um, Jesus' goal is to reveal the selfishness and the fear in our hearts and to teach us to embrace his desire for our maturity and the maturity of others. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love so that we will all grow up into the maturity of Christ. If we don't rebuke, there is no maturity. There is no growth. If we don't forgive, there is no maturity. There is no growth. I, does that make sense? Do you see what I'm saying there? Yes. Because she and I would be, uh, it doesn't surprise any of you that know us, we would be absolute opposites. Something wrong happens, I want to charge in there, guns are blazing like John Wayne and Clint Eastwood. I, there's a few bodies laying on the ground. That's okay. You know, that's you know, just part of the deal. That's not right. For me to respond to wrongs and wounds with a brokenness, with a passion, forgiveness is what must drive my rebuke. Same time, my wife, on the other hand, she wants peace. She wants... No problems, no waves, no conflict. And so for you to see the need, if you don't rebuke me, I cannot see what's wrong and I cannot grow from what's wrong. Spent way too many years yeah. peacekeeping yes. rather than peacemaking. Yes. Way too many. And I spent way too many years rebuking just because I was mad. Just as I wanted to hurt you like you hurt me. And it doesn't work, guys. It just doesn't work. We've got to have both. We've got to do both. You see my point. Fourthly, again, you're going to have to trust me on this. But when Jesus says in uh, verse 3, I think it is, so, uh, let's see here. Wait a minute, where, where am I saying this? Um, oh, yeah, okay. He says, so watch yourself. If your brother wrongs you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Even if he wrongs you seven times a day and says, I repent, you must forgive him. Many of you would not know this, but in the Greek New Testament, there are four words that are translated to forgive. And I'm not going to take the time to get into all those today, but I will let you know this. One of the words, and it's actually the word that Jesus uses here in Luke 16, uh, 17, when he says, you must forgive him. That word for forgive is a word that means to suffer. To, uh, and, and when I use the word suffer here, that's a King James word, actually. And uh, it means to own, to embrace to accept. It was the same word that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus uh, goes to John the Baptist by the Jordan River and he says, John, I want you to baptize me. And John responds by saying, no, not going to happen, Lord. Not going to happen. I, I should not baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And then Jesus says, literally, John, 
I want you to forgive this. And that's not the way we would say it. What we would say and what, what King James translated was, I want you to suffer this. The way your tra Bible's translated is, I want you to accept this. I want you to own this. I want you to embrace this. It's exactly the same idea that you see in Matthew 18 where the king, there's a servant, he owes the king millions of dollars. The king says, it's time to pay up. And the guy falls on the ground and says, please forgive me, please forgive me. I, I'm going to start working really hard and I'm going to pay you back every last penny. And what does the king say? The king says, he doesn't say, okay, I'm going to put, put you on a payment plan. Okay, I'm going to give you a little extra time. No, no, no. What the king says is, you are forgiven I'll pay the debt. The very fact that the king paid, he's the one that suffered the loss. See, the king didn't just let the guy off the hook. He did, but the king had to suffer the loss. It's the exact same word. The word, the word, the, uh, it's, it's in Paul, uh, when, when Jesus on the cross says, um, uh, it is finished. It's the Greek word for tetelestai. And it means the debt has been paid in full. Who paid the debt? It wasn't just that the debt went away. It's that Jesus paid the debt. He suffered the debt. When Jesus told the disciples, you and I must forgive wrongs, sins. What the word he uses is, Larry, Brett, you've got to own that debt. You've got to embrace that debt. Um, forgiveness means to own the debt. And if you'll think, let, it, let, the, let the image run, run for a minute. If you pay the debt long enough, the debt goes away. So what, what Jesus is saying there is, a wrong occurs somebody's got to pay that debt. The question's not, is the debt going to be paid? The question is, I think the question Jesus is asking is, who's going to pay this debt? Are you going to demand that they pay it? Or are you going to be willing to pay it? Well, how do you make them pay the debt if it's a wrong, if it's a sin? How do you make, I can tell you how, you, how we all make people pay the debt. You sin against me and I decide I'm not going to pay the debt. You've got to pay it. You caused it, so you pay the debt. How do I make you pay? Withdrawing from you. Keeping my distance from you. Punishing you. Punishing you. Wishing you ill. Slandering you to other people. Uh, uh, lowering you, your image in other people's eyes. Warning people. Oh, Doug. Careful. Be careful about Randy. Be, be, I, I'm just looking out for your welfare. <laughs> or, or better, uh, Dale, pray for Randy. He's a rat from hell. Pray, would you pray with me for... I, you're paying the debt. You're paying the debt. You're paying the debt. We laugh about that, but how horrible is that really? Yes. That is yes. horrible. Yes. That we do that. Or Jesus is suggesting... I believe Jesus is begging us. You want to get rid of this relational weight that's drowning you and me? 
You pay the debt. How do we pay the debt? When I'm around Doug or Dale, I say good things about you rather than bad things. When you walk into the room, I don't hide from you. I smile at you and show you love. I speak good words to you. I speak good words about you. I genuinely pray for you to be blessed and to experience the abundance of God. I don't just mouth the words. I mean it to the best of my ability. Forgiveness means that someone is going to pay the debt and I choose for that someone to be me. It is so wrong. Oh, let me, all right, real quickly. Number, what was that? Number, that was number three, four? Is that right? Okay. Yeah. No, then number five, and we're through. I find it remarkable how Jesus ends this story. Listen to how he ends it. He says, the, the disciples understood exactly what Jesus was saying. There was no confusion, because how do they respond? They hear Jesus teach them how to forgive, and their response is, Lord, increase our faith. I, we're not up to this challenge. We can't do this. And what does Jesus say? If your faith is as tiny as a mustard seed, you can tell this mulberry tree to be cast into the sea and it will obey you. And what I took from that is simply this. Jesus' response to the disciples' declaration, I can't do it. Jesus says, that dog won't hunt. You can do it. Can't never could. You can do it because my power is available. My power is more than sufficient to help you forgive. The question's not, can you forgive? The question is, do you want to? If I want to forgive, the problem is I don't want to forgive certain people. In my mind, their wrong is so wrong they don't deserve my forgiveness and they won't get my forgiveness. Okay. Have a nice swim. Enjoy your swim. But when I get ready to look somebody in the face and I make the decision, I'm going to forgive them because Jesus has told me to, I believe that what Jesus is saying, you just start off and you see if my power is unavailable. You see if my power is insufficient. My power will be there when you decide to forgive. How cruel for God to give us a command that He does not empower us to obey. My unwillingness to forgive somebody says more about my view of God than it does my view of your wrong. Because God says, you can forgive. I will give you the power to forgive. And Paul, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says in Ephesians 1, the immeasurable greatness of God's power that he has committed to all people who believe 
which is the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. I, I want you to end, uh, but I, I want to say this. There's not a parent or a grandparent in this room that does not want their children and grandchildren to come to believe in Christ. But the question is, how are they going to be convinced? Where are they going to see evidence that Christ is real and worth believing in? My wife has claimed to be a Christian since I met you, you know. 100 years ago. 100 years ago. <laughs> yes, yes. I don't believe that my wife is a Christian because she tells me she is. I believe with all of my heart that my wife is a Christian because she has forgiven me hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Her choice to forgive me time after time, seven times a day, every day for 40 years, minimum. Her choice to be empowered by God to forgive me of, my wrong, of the wrongs and the wounds that I have sinned against her with that willingness to forgive has convinced me that she knows and loves and is inhabited by Jesus Christ himself. Ma'am? We're good. You don't want to? You want me to? Yeah. Real so quickly. real, real fast. This, this little book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, and I, I can't recommend the book highly enough. He's a Holocaust survivor and was a psychiatrist um, in, in Austria before the war and then was in the concentration camp and survived and came out and wrote this little book in nine days. Uh, and he is calling for us to, so is, is, this person's not a Christian. Great, one of the greatest selling books of all time. Just so yeah, it's nine, just really nine, one of the best days, books. Yeah. 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 Man's search for meaning. And he says we find meaning in moving past the hurt. And he offers the idea of forgiveness. Says a Holocaust survivor. And he does it in two forms. Action. He testified for a guard that had hurt him in the guard's trial. And attitude. And we'll close with this. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last and greatest of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. He made it through the concentration camp because he chose to live forward in hope and in, in forgiveness. I'm going to read it one more time. Everything can be taken a man but, away from man but one thing, to choose his attitude in any given set of circumstances. And in doing so, he chooses his way. We get to choose. And we're going to choose one way or the other.
Yeah, we're, we're, you're choosing, and I'm choosing. One choice, God says, I will empower you to do what you don't believe you can do. If you'll trust me. I think that's a better choice. Um, we're going to end the service by taking the Lord's Supper. And there'll be some folks that'll come up here and serve you if you would like to take it. And uh, we will eat and drink this bread and this wine just as a way of declaring and reminding ourselves and declaring to each other Jesus was more focused on His response to our sin than He was focused on our sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Um, my mom and Brenda are going to be up front on both sides here uh, once Chris starts the, the, the music. If you would like to come up and have prayer with one of them, um, please do. Please avail yourself of that. Maybe you've got somebody, then you, you need somebody to pray with you that you'll make the right choice about forgiving. Maybe you have someone in your life that you want to pray about that they need to make the right choice regarding you. Um, or maybe it's something else that's on your heart and in your life that you need prayer for. But they'll be up front, and if you'd like to have prayer, they would love to pray with you. And that'll, you can do that just as soon as uh, they start singing. But uh, I just want to invite you to take this bread and this wine or juice and just to eat and drink and remember and give thanks.